Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. So hello and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin McNess and with me today is Sven Nihon, Professor of Ethics and AI at the University of Munich. So Sven, hello. Hello. Uh, I gave you a very, very brief bio there. Um, do you think you could perhaps flesh that out a little bit? Because I know, you know, I've known you for a while, particularly in the area of ethics and robotics. Um, but you're now Professor of Ethics and AI in Munich, and you've just published a book on ethics and technology. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to be on the program. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a philosopher by background. I did a PhD in philosophy at the University of Michigan uh, and started from, you know, not the ethics of robotics or AI or anything like that. I wrote a dissertation about uh Kantian philosophy and the categorical imperative, sort of really uh, the sort of the uh, yeah, very very far from AI yeah. robotics. However, uh, in my very first job, which was as a postdoc at the University of Cologne in Germany, uh, one of my assignments was to uh, every semester teach a course in applied ethics, and so I I taught a course on human enhancement, the idea of using technology to improve ourselves not just to treat uh, problems and illnesses or try to cure us from pro- uh, you know diseases we might have, but also kind of going beyond this, the status quo. Uh, and that's a very controversial idea within philosophy, but very interesting. And so mm-hmm. I sort of got interested in this whole more, like, you know, what's, uh, you know, technology, uh, what does that have to go, have, what has it got to do with sort of the traditional questions of ethics? I mean, what's, what's a good human life and, you know, where do we want to, go to in the future, etc. So I really got into that. And then in my second job was in the Netherlands, where we, we uh, first met uh, working at the Technical University of Eindhoven. Of course, there, it being a technical university, it makes sense to sort of think about t- issues to do with technology. And one of the things there that was interesting was that people weren't just thinking about technology. They were obviously also creating new technologies, including robots, and uh, they, the students there have developed uh, soccer-playing robots that have performed ver- very well in something called the, the RoboCup. Right. Uh, they also had a, uh, a medical um, care robot that got to meet the Dutch Queen. Uh, most of the, the staff, myself included, did not get to meet the Queen, but the <laughs> robots uh, <laughs> did and so on. So, yeah, so what, what I'm really fascinated by, yeah, I'm really fascinated by those cases is how the Queen responded to the robot or how mm. people responded to the f- soccer-playing robots. Actually, I did get to play soccer with the, those robots, and it's really interesting to interact with something 
that mm -hmm. it looks like a sort of up, upside down trash can or something like that, but with a little leg sticking out. But once you're interacting with it, you know, you very quickly start treating it as a kind of football or soccer player that you're mm. interacting with. So I really got interested in this sort of human technology interaction and what that might mean for, you know, ideas about, uh, you know, how should we behave towards other people or entities and how should they, other people or other entities behave towards us and so that's sort of the, the path that led me to uh, the, the ethics of robotics and, and, and AI. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, that, that reminds me, the soccer playing robot reminds me of a story which I think you share in the book of the uh, Boston Dynamics mule, uh, the sort of vaguely dog-like looking robot that the Boston Dynamics scientists were kicking to show how stable it was. And then the people who responded to that in, in the sense of, isn't this cruel the way you're treating this robot? Which I think was very, very interesting seeing people's emotional and 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 intellectual reaction to the way in which we treat robots. Indeed, yeah, lots of people, as you said, they said like, "Yo, it's wrong. Don't kick, don't kick any dog, whether it's a real dog or a robot." You know, poor Spot, which you know, the name of the robot is Spot. Right. Oh, I myself, <laughs> I got to meet Spot, the robot dog, at okay. the in the Hague, and uh, there was an experiment where. One got to sit in a chair and spot the robot dog would approach you and stop about one meter in front of you, which was actually for me quite unsettling because like it's a little bigger in reality than you know those pictures. At least that's the way I experienced it. And having it sort of come directly towards you and stopping right in front of you was actually quite intimidating. So it's you know it's one thing yeah. to see someone kicking a robot in a video clip and it's another to have the robot approach you and then feel <laughs> like a predator so uh so yeah the, the, the whole thing about sort of humans interacting with technologies and the kinds of qualities or properties that we attribute to them whether or not they have them mm. and also you know we interact with robots and ai with brains and nervous systems and ideas about ethics that developed way before there were any robots or any AI in the world. And so one question is, do we need to update our ideas about ethics and, uh, you know, in order yeah. to accommodate the new technological world we live in with AI and, and robots and all sorts of things that are new to us as, as a species, so to speak? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that, that's, of course, one way to go. The other way is to follow, uh, again, as you talk about in the book, Joanna Bryson's approach of saying, let's just not develop AI in such a way that we need to develop our ethics. Let's keep AI and robotics at that slave level. That's right. Yeah. So she has a very interesting view because a lot of people say an AI technology, uh, like, a, like a large language model chatting with us or a robot looking like a human, it, it's always going to be a tool. It can never have any feelings. It can never have any sentience, any emotions, any consciousness. Uh, and so, you know, it, it would never make sense to treat it as anything more than a tool. Bryson has the view that, no, it, it is, at least in theory, possible to build a robot or an AI system that has some sort of consciousness, that has some sort of emotions. And if we did that, then we would have to treat it mm. with the kind of consideration that you should show it to someone that has feelings, that has consciousness, that has thoughts, etc. And but that would be very strange because someone would be owning those technologies. They would be buying and selling them. So it would be a kind of slave, so to speak. It would be working for us, and we would be owning it. And but it would have feelings and be some sort of person. So in her view, it's better not to go there. Let's keep all technologies 
you know, in, in such a state that it, you know that we don't have any rights. Uh, they don't have any rights. We don't have any obligations towards mm. them. Yeah, yeah. I've got to admit, I'm quite sympathetic to that view myself. I, I, I find that quite a persuasive position. But um, how, how about yourself? Are you do you find sympathy with that, or do you think? Uh, that's yes, the... I, I do. Uh, I mean, there there could be cases where having the the technology be human like might be one of the things that makes it work the way it's supposed to to, to do. And and one example that I sometimes like to bring up is there's a robot called Casper. Uh, developed by some researchers, uh, I think in 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 the UK and also in Belgium, I think working together. But uh, it's based in the UK, uh, and that's a robot that is uh, uh, used in as a sort of experimental form of treatment for children with autism to make them open up uh, and to mm-hmm. communicate with strangers. And they find it less overwhelming to yeah. start with a robot that looks a little bit like a human. And so, in that kind of case you know, maybe the effect can only be achieved if the robot has human-like features. But on the other hand, there's no need to give it an, an internal mental life. Or, or, mm. you know, it's enough that it pretends, sort of, or like yeah. it mimics, uh, you know, human behavior. So, so yeah, I, I'm quite sympathetic to the Bryson view, though uh, it's also interesting to note that a lot of people respond to robots and AI and other technologies as if yeah. they have those qualities that she thinks that we shouldn't create in them. And so we, we also have to deal with that sort of case. Lots of people, for example, say that they their Replica app is their new best friend. Mm. Uh, they, they say they fall in love with Replica, some people, and, and so on. And so, you know, how do we respect people that have those kinds of feelings towards technology? Should we ridicule them? Should we ignore them or what? I mean, we should respect them. So how do we best respect them? I think that's an interesting Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. And of course, that comes back to some of your Kantian studies then, way back in the day. <laughs> um, about Indeed, how, yeah, no, absolutely. So like, you know, how do, we, yeah. how do we treat every person as, as an end in, in him mm. or herself, uh, you know, in, in themselves, to use the Kantian phrase, and never as a mere tool. And if someone, if it's their, you know, most deep wish and hope to have like the replica as their best friend, I mean, am I supposed to just ignore their wishes or am I, in order to treat them as a, as, a, as an end to use the Kantian language, should I respect their wishes and sort of play along, so to speak, or yeah. what's the problem yeah. to behave? That, I think that's actually an interesting and quite complicated question. Definitely, definitely. So what was it that prompted you to, to write the book now? Um, I, you know, a, a book coming out on technology ethics, on one level, it's very timely, but on another level, it feels like it, it could, you know, it's going to risk being out of date within about six months. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I do have a copy of the book here, so I'll just show that. I'm not going to be a video or just audio, but uh, yeah, the book is called This is Technology Ethics and Introduction. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a series that's called This is Philosophy. Uh, and so there, there's, you know, the, there's the, the first book in the series called This is Philosophy. Then there's one called This is Metaphysics. This is, you know, I don't know, Philosophy of Biology, etc. And so Part of what prompted me to book, write the book was just that they asked me, would I be interested in writing a, a book about technology ethics for that series? So that's, in a certain sense, the boring answer to what prompted <laughs> me to write the book. But on the other hand, I have taught technology ethics uh, before at the university, and there are some really good books out there. Some of them are a little bit dry, and uh, I don't want to go so far as say boring, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, you know, it would be interesting to try to write something that, I mean, maybe some of the readers would, would find it dry and boring, but the, the attempt was to write something that would be kind of interesting and fun to read. Mm. Lots of interesting examples, like, you know, the soccer playing robots and uh, 
uh, and all sorts of examples along those lines. Yeah. And to kind of and kind of mix uh, the the more your theoretical philosophy stuff uh, with your real world examples and uh, you know interesting anecdotes from the, the mm. world of technology. Uh, and just because I mean, actually, there is quite a demand out there for the ethics yeah. of technology. I've noticed the, the ethics of AI. People find it very interesting, and uh, they are, of course, they they are looking for different ways of cons- consuming ideas about this. I mean, what you're doing, I think, is one of the best ways of, mm. to, to, to come, uh, approach people. I mean, like the, a podcast or a video or something like that. But people sometimes also want to read something. And definitely, there are lots of courses now at the university. Lots of universities are starting to teach the ethics of AI, the ethics of technology, both to people who study ethics anyway, like philosophy students, for example, but also to computer scientists, uh, students, uh, computer science students, or to engineers. I mentioned I worked in in, in Eindhoven before I I, I came to uh, Munich eventually. And back then, uh, all the engineering students at that technical university had to study uh, the ethics of uh, technology. And so I tried to write a book that could be used in such a context, but mm-hmm. that could also be enjoyed by people who are more interested in this coming from a philosophical point of view. So uh, it's an interesting challenge to try to write something that yeah. can appeal to different audiences. And yeah, uh, so th- those were some of the things that, uh, you know, oh, I also li- like the idea of writing books. I- I'm-, I'm trying to come up <laughs> with an idea for my next book at the moment. So we'll Excellent. see. Excellent. Yeah, well, I've, I've got to say, I, I enjoyed it. And there's somebody like you who's taught engineering and computer science students in the past, um, the, the sort of those questions about ethics and technology. For, for me, it seemed to work, and I would have quite happily used it in that context. And I, I particularly liked the uh, use of having YouTube clips and TED Talks and so on in your footnotes. Uh, I thought that was very powerful. And, and again, for those people who might find a philosophy book quite dry, uh, to be able to click on those and, and watch people clicking spot or um, or watch the talk on, on a particular issue was, was fantastic. And links to podcasts and so on as well. Uh, sticking with the book then, I found the chapter on ethical alignment and control particularly interesting. Um, do you think you could say a little bit more about what you mean by or what is meant by ethical alignment? And I'm particularly thinking here about the two-level approach that you talk about with Yes and Gabriel. Uh, in light of the Stanislav Petrov case, and I'm just throwing all those names out because I, I know that you'll remember them from having written the book, and you you can tell people about what the case was in 1983. I vaguely remembered 1983 myself and how tense issues were. I was living in um, I was living in Germany at the time as part of the British military occupation of Germany, and so it was a very in- interesting and tense time. But yeah, yeah, please talk about that case and then the the question about ethical alignment. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that case with uh, Stanislav Petrov partly because when people talk about risks to do with uh, intelligent technology systems, they often imagine a future scenario mm-hmm. with a super intelligent sort of robot overlord, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> threatening us all. But that was back in 1983, as you said, and this was a missile detection system that the Soviet Union was using to try to see whether you know the US was sending any atomic weapons their way. And one day the system indicated that indeed an attack had been launched from the US, uh, you know, and five uh, basically nuclear missiles were heading towards the Soviet Union. And then uh, the, the, the person who was sort of in charge of looking at the monitors and you know, checking the equipment, their instructions were was to just like directly 
report to the superiors and then to start up a counterattack, basically. Uh, and if uh, Petrov had, had followed the protocol and done that, there's there's a risk. There had there was a risk that the you know, Soviet uh, the Soviet Union wouldn't wait until the, the bombs would strike, but they would try to you know, create a kind of retaliatory strike back and start a nuclear war, basically. But on that particular occasion, uh, Stanislav Petrov thought, well, this might be a false alarm, so let's not follow the the, the protocol. Uh, let's wait and see. And so he didn't follow his orders and didn't re- report to superiors. And indeed, there was there was it was a false alarm, so there was no nuclear attack. But if people had followed, you know, what the technology had been, uh, you know, been instructing them to do on this occasion, and, and they followed the, the the protocol, then that there might have been a nuclear war. And so, uh, in a lot of warning systems, like if you have a smoke alarm, it's really good if it goes off more often than you know when there's actual smoke. Sometimes even call the smoke alarm effect that that's you know that's it's, that's mm-hmm. a good feature. But with this kind of technology, that would, could mean a, like a, a, a new world war with nuclear yeah. bombs going off <laughs> here and there. So that could be really bad. And so you might think that that's a, a technology that was not very well aligned with mm-hmm. the, you know, the the values and the interests that are at stake in in, in a, such a situation. And so the whole idea of the alignment of of AI or other technologies with human values is to try to have them function in such a way that they, uh, you know, live up to the goals or they help to accomplish the goals that we we have for them, and that they don't sort of run a counter to what they're meant to do. It could be that some very simple type of uh, a goal is such that there are possible means towards that goal that would be really bad. I mean, if you have a technology that's supposed to make you remind you to exercise but it's it's also able to sort of block out other uh, appointments in your calendar so that you only think about exercise and you might miss an important you know appointment or whatever i mean that's a pretty not a very dramatic case but the whole idea is that uh i mean especially with self-learning or you know uh, reinforcement learning type of ai technologies there's a risk that they would engage in what is sometimes called reward hacking, which is the idea that they, they, they're looking around for different ways of solving goals and they might solve them in what you might think of sort of as perverse ways. Uh, and, and so uh, Yasun, uh, Gabriel and others, they, they, they argue that, okay, we have to think about, well, there are two, two sides to the issue. One, how do we get on a te- from a technological point of view, the technologies just do what we want them to do and to not like solve problems in, in strange and novel ways uh, from a technical point of view. But then of course the question is, well, what goals should there be? Whose goals? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, let's say that you and I differ slightly in our values. I mean, it might even be that we have the same values, but we, we prioritize our values differently. So for you, uh, friends and family is, is more important than the, the pursuit of knowledge, or, or for me or you know, vice versa, whatever. Sure. And so, if the technology some, somehow has to like you know fit with this list of priorities, you know th- there might be a difference in what it would do mm. in terms of if it had your list of priorities or mine. Uh, but that's just a case where we have the same values, but we rank them differently. Now, what if there's we have a partial overlap in values, but there is also some values that you have that I don't have, and some values that I have that you don't have. Like you know, whose values should it be? And uh, I mean. Sometimes when philosophers and others talk about values, they, I think they exaggerate 
the, the mm-hmm. degree of disagreement, especially if you zoom out to a general level. But if you go to a more specific level and the interpretation of different values, and again, some, something like how do we prioritize our values, then there would be a lot of disagreement. And you know, if you're trying to build autonomous technologies that are supposed to solve problems for us, we, we, we really have to have them solve the right problems, but we're, there, there's also this question about whose problems and who, yeah. according to whose set of values, according to what list uh, or ranking of priorities. So that's yeah. the, uh, the, the problem that uh, Gabriel uh, sort of right. discusses interestingly in his work. This was really interesting, and it puts me in mind of, and again, you'll you'll know this far better than me, the um, the MIT public experiment, which they ran on the trolley problem a few years ago uh, over the internet, and they had millions of people respond to it. And one of the things that came out was um, when you have a, a choice of who to hit, whether it's an old person or a child, in the West, I think the split was roughly 50-50 as to which way you went. Um, but when they when it came to China, the choice was very much in favor of hitting the child over hitting the older person, speaking to a culture of respect for age and uh, and, and so on, which we don't have in the West and which is there in China. And, and that did make me think at the time of if you have a self-driving car that has these values built into it, as you say, hitting that first level, do, do, do the values then change as you cross international borders? Um, to the, the values of the country in which you're now driving and how, how would that function? So I think a really interesting interesting challenge. Absolutely. And that's also a good example of how, uh, I mean, both people in the West and people in China would value both young and old people. Of course. But there may be a difference in terms of if you had to make a choice, who would you kind of rank higher or lower yeah. in your list of priorities? And so I think that's a good example of how people sometimes think, oh, yeah, they have different values in different countries, but it's it's often more to do in, in terms of emphasis and yeah. about the relations among, among values. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that that's a fair point, absolutely. So um, what, how about control as well? Because I think the area of control generally in philosophy is actually quite underexplored. Um, but I think also with automation, and clearly the question of automation is about, I say clearly, there's a degree to which automation is about handing over control. Uh, you know, I, I no longer control the vacuum cleaner in my house because I just press go on my Roomba or I now I press it on my phone. I don't even have to touch the Roomba and it goes and does it. So I thought the the approach that you talked about in the book from uh, Roman Yampolsky was really interesting there. So could you talk a little bit about that as well? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I should first say that I actually think that control is interesting partly because I think it is something that people do value, but... It's not one of those things that when you, know, you when you ask people, can you mention some of your values? They would might say, you know, I value, uh, you know, uh, justice or you know, friendship, or wisdom or you know, virtue or whatever. I mean, that maybe it's a sort of old-fashioned way as of putting things to say that I value virtue. But that, you know, people value mm-hmm. being compassionate and being, you know, friendly and fair, etc. But very few people would say like, yeah, I value control. <laughs> that sounds like you're a control freak, as we, as we say. But on the other hand, when people display something like self-control, we tend to admire them. Mm. They uh, have control over an instrument or their own bodies, as, as a like a gymnast might have, like Simone Biles or someone like that. We see this as something admirable. Uh, and in general, we don't like the idea of losing control. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the things that always comes up when people start talking about autonomous technologies artificially intelligent technologies, you know, are we going to be able to retain control over them? And 
uh, Roman Yalpolsky, he's a computer scientist, I would say, and a philosopher, because he's mm -hmm. quite philosophically inclined, and he writes uh, things about, you know, the, the, these basic concepts. And one interesting idea is that there seems to be a kind of trade-off between control or controllability on the one hand, absolute controllability on the one hand, and, and absolute safety on the other. So let's say that direct controllability amounts to a technology always following my orders, so to speak. And so let's say I'm out in my self-driving car, I say, stop. And there's like some sort of voice control function. Well, if I'm in the middle of the autobahn in Germany, let's say I'm driving really fast because people drive really fast there, uh, and the car will just do what I say, stop. Well, I might cause a major a car crash and like a very big problem. And so uh, if I want complete control, direct control, then I might not get safety. If I want complete safety, then I might have to have some sort of, at the most, indirect control. Mm. And so he thinks that there's a kind of fundamental uh, trade-off and you, you can't have both. And so the question then is, what, what do you need? Do you need one or do you need the other? Do you need both? Or do you, is, is there some way of solving this process? And, and I mean, he treats it as a kind of theoretical paradox. Mm. And then just, you know, how, how can you map well, optimize safety and how can I optimize control so that, you know, you can't have, they can't be both be maximized, but, you know, what's the right balance to find? And then he's, he's coming up with all sorts of interesting cases to show that in theory that they seem to be sort of pulling in different directions. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting. And tying that back in with uh, with what you were just saying about ethical alignment as well. There's not over not only control versus safety, but also control against other values that we might have. So, the car Absolutely. may be pulling us in one direction that we personally would choose not to go in, although the designers of the car did push it in that direction. Does, do you think that plays in at all? And this is a, a slightly left field question. Um, for some of the talk around um, nudge theory and sort of statistical mm. determination. So there's, there's this thing about you know, most people leave their towels in hotels to get picked up by the maid and washed every day. And then they found if they write, 75% of people like you choose not to have their towels washed every day uh, because it saves water and it's good for the environment. And when they do that, far fewer people leave their towels on the floor. And there are some questions then raised, well, have you lost autonomy by that being written for you? Is is there a reduction in your control there? Do, do you think those, those two areas fit in at all together or am I just going completely off topic here? No, absolutely. I think I absolutely I agree. I mean, uh, as I said, people tend to value things such as control of, of oneself, uh, autonomy, uh, and we tend we tend to think, uh, you know, contrary to that, that if I try to control other people, I mean, we talked about uh, slavery before, and like you know, should should technology be slaves, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Should we have complete control over them? Well, well, if they if the technologies were persons. Or if I'm not interacting with the technology, but, but with another person, and I try to completely control that person to make them just do whatever I want and to not allow them to do what they want and to, to sort of steer them in every, in every possible way. Well, this, you know, is one of the most unethical things you can do. I mean, have someone as your slave. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so if, if part of having someone as your slave is that you, you're exercising a form of complete control over them and nudging is an attempt to kind of control other people 
then you know you, you, you can see how nudging could become something very unethical so to speak and especially if you then design technologies that would do this in a very subtle way mm. uh, so that people don't realize that they're being controlled by other people so that they behave according to whatever patterns they want them to, to behave uh, of course people who defend nudging will say that well it's going to be designed in such a way that there is always a possibility of doing otherwise uh, no options are blocked out. Uh, it's just that you know you're nudged, you're led mm -hmm. gently in a certain direction. But on the other hand, if you're if you're uh, you know in a very subtle way, you know, manipulating me to act in a certain way, uh, you do seem to have a, a desire to control me and what I do. And if controlling other people is ethically problematic, then obviously there is a problem here. Uh, if it's done for my own good, mm -hmm. well, uh, that is nice perhaps because it, you know, there's a concern for my well-being but on the other hand there's not a concern for my autonomy i'm mm. treated as a child i mean it's perfectly fine to try to steer your children in the right direction but at a certain point you have to let them go so to speak and to be to go up and be autonomous adults even if they that involves uh, making mistakes and uh yeah so yeah yeah and of course, we're back to Kant again with talking about autonomy, yes. or maybe with Mill, perhaps in that case. But um, definitely, I think, yeah, some really interesting challenges that come up there. And of course, as well, with that dilemma between control versus safety on the individual level with the car, in the case with the towels, you've got control versus environmental responsibility or whatever. And the fact that whether it's a tragedy of the common situation or something else, where as individuals, we often choose to use our control in a way that is not beneficial for the whole um yeah i can certainly see strong consequential arguments saying that that you could make um that that position that we should be controlling people more scary as that might be for those of us who risk being controlled um i'm aware Sven, we, we've I think we could probably talk for another two or three hours quite happily about this stuff and particularly about your book, which, again, I found absolutely wonderful, really enjoyed it. Um, but before we end, is there anything that we've not covered that you would like to add or to talk about? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, both my book and, the, and just like the philosophy of technology itself, just I mean, there are so many topics that I could discuss, but uh, I think I mean, it's, I. I just want to mention, I think it's a nice development that more people than just uh, you know philosophers and others are interested in ethical questions to do with uh, technology. I mean, there seems to be a nice development in the sense that uh, even though there, you know, there are new problems, there is also a lot of new awareness, I think, of mm. the fact that we should be thinking about these problems. And so I, it's, I'm, I'm optimistic when it comes to the interest that people are showing in, in the ethics of technology. Uh, both in and outside of academia and both uh, among people who are traditionally interested in ethics and people who are more interested in technology. So I, I just want to mention, I think that's a, that's a nice development. And let's hope that that also leads to a good actual development. Mm. That's an open question, but that's I'm, I'm hopeful. That's that's good to hear. I think I, I hear a lot of cynicism in this world. And so that, that's nice that you're optimistic about it and that we could we could be moving in the right direction. And certainly we've got a lot of regulations that are coming out or being called for in this area to try and, and yeah, put some guardrails in place. So things do feel like they're moving in the right direction. But there's always going to be that matter of catch up, isn't there, between the lawmakers, Absolutely. technology development and so on. Well, 
Sled, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Uh, thank you ever so much for freeing up the time to talk to us. And uh, I hope to see you again on the program at some point in the future. Absolutely. Thanks a lot again. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.